Our scripture reading this morning is in Psalm 19. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. David writes, verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. This morning, our message is coming from Matthew, the 22nd chapter. We'll be looking at verses 34 through 33, 34 through 40. Yeah, 34 through 40. Uh, and before we get there, I would like to just do a little review over the, uh, the last several weeks. This, uh, what we have been going through in this part of Matthew is the last week of the life of Christ. And we began it with the triumphal entry. And Jesus declaring that, that He is the Messiah. He is the King. The people shouting, He is the Son of David. Uh, the One who comes. Uh, you know, and, and so they were declaring an answer to Scripture in Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. He came announcing who He was and who He is. And we also have in that first week that we discussed the, the cleansing of the temple. And how that had to be, um, well, it was obvious when you read through it, how uh, angry it made the, the Jewish leadership. Uh, he, he, the people would come to the inner court of the temple, and that was set up as a marketplace to sell uh, what was necessary to, for worship, especially in the area of sacrifices. In fact, there were people, and, and they would come uh, and travel and bring, you know, they would pick a, a, a sacrifice to bring with them, you know, a lamb out of their, their flock or, or whatever, or purchase one. And by the time they would get there, the, the lamb might have lost some of its uh, uh, fullness and, and this type of thing, and they would get up to the line to have it examined, and it wouldn't be good enough. And, and they were directed to where? The courts, uh, the, the outer courts, uh, the, the courts of the Gentiles, to purchase the right, you know, lamb, and also they needed to exchange their their currency. You've got to remember, at this point in time, uh, Passover, uh, the people would be coming from all over the Mediterranean world, clear from Spain to to Persia and, and further out at times. Again, I know you've heard me say this many times, but those who lived way far away, where it might be only a once in a lifetime opportunity to make it to, to uh, Israel, to Jerusalem for Passover. And so this was so important to them. And there were tens of thousands of people who were visiting the city of Jerusalem. And they came with their currency of their land. Well, when they paid their temple tax, they had to pay that in a particular temple coin. So not only were they selling the uh, sacrifices in the court of the Gentiles, but they were also selling the, uh, exchanging the money. And they did so at a profit. And so Jesus said, you basically turned my, my uh, house of prayer into a, a, a place of merchandise, a, a, a storehouse, and even a den of thieves. Now, that, you've got to catch that three th- phrase, a den of thieves. What he was saying is, not only are you using it like a marketplace, but on top of that, you're gouging. That's what a den of thieves in a marketplace would be. They were the guys who gouged. So you've got to see what Jesus saw when He walked in the temple. Why He was so angry. And it was righteous anger. 
Uh, you know, I, I think sometimes I've come close maybe to having righteous anger over some things. But I, I know that as soon as I, I start to think that I have it, I realize I don't. And uh, the idea is, is that wanting to see what was going on in Christ's mind, but then seeing the response as he cleansed the temple of all these people. The, the, the Sadducees uh, were making, along with others, were making great money at this. And, and so they were not happy campers with what Jesus was saying. And, and so as he cleanses the temple, he stirs the crowd again. And then his teachings, his parables, were all coming together in such a way as pointing out not only is He the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, the, the, the Son of David come, but also pointing out that the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, the leaders of the Sanhedrin were not fulfilling their duty to the people in preparing them to receive the Christ. So we get to a point where they decide... Hey, we have, we're not going to take this anymore. And they have decided that they want to do him in. In fact, they decided that before the triumphal entry. Now I'm sure they're more convicted about it than they ever have been before. Everything that he did seemed to stir that underneath fire of just, we've got to get rid of Jesus. We've got to, if nothing less than discredit him. But we really, and they were already seeing this want him dead. And I know you heard this before again, but 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 just so angry were they at Jesus and his miracles that were showing you could see that they were understanding, they are showing his power that when Lazarus was raised from dead from the dead, they even wanted Lazarus dead, because then the proof would be missing. They would have said it was a spirit that walked around or something to that effect. They were willing to go against everything that was in the core of their law when it came to Jesus. And they would continue like this. So they're, they're, they're fed up. They're done. And, and when we come to chapter uh, 22, uh, starting with this point where they start to ask questions of Jesus, They've got him probably in one of the outer courts of the temple somewhere in in Jerusalem. And they start to ask questions of him. And see how, again, that setup happens. We we come to verse 15 of chapter 22, uh, which was uh, a couple of weeks ago, the taxes, uh, the question about taxes. Who do we pay our taxes to? Uh, Should should Jews pay taxes at all? And this was, again, one of those no-win situations. No matter how he answered this question, he was going to be leaving uh, a group of people dissatisfied with his answer. Because, you see, the people that were asking him this question were the Herodians and the Pharisees. And they both had different, completely different opinions about this. Isn't it interesting, by the way, the Pharisees and the Herodians wouldn't sit next to each other. They wouldn't walk down the street next to each other. They disliked each other. They even would have to say they despised each other. You see, the Pharisees, and, and, and Brad did an excellent job on this last week, the Pharisees were the, the, the legalists, the ultra-conservative legalists. They, they really they wanted Rome out. They wanted a, a total uh, priesthood rule over the city of Jerusalem and over the nation of Israel. They wanted it all restored, and that's the Messiah they were looking for, the king who would come in the name of David and do that. Kick out the Jews and restore the kingdom in a very physical way. That's what they were looking for. Now, the Herodians, they were, they, they were by their very name, Herodians. <laughs> okay? The Herodians were people who actually... Worked with Rome. They were Jews, but they worked with Rome. And they actually said the Roman law is not all that bad. If you figure it out, it lets us live. If we would just be in tune with them, we could live in harmony and in peace. And by the way, this was such a volatile area and so difficult to rule over that you know, Pilate and any other governor that was overseeing this area always handled almost every situation with kit gloves in a sense. They didn't want to upset it too much because keeping the peace in this area was a really difficult job. And if you failed, Rome noticed. 
and your career was normally over. Ask Pilate and follow his career after the cross and see. So, you have this, this, these two normally at odds with each other group coming together. Verse 15 of 22, it says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. How to entangle, which means more than to just, you know, Getting to, to contradict, but to kind of get it so that it's all meshed together and doesn't make any sense. They were trying to discredit him, entangle him, to trap him, and and get him caught up in his words. And so they joined. It says they they sent their disciples. The the Pharisees sent their disciples to Jesus along with the Herodians. All of a sudden, they're walking together in the same path. Isn't it strange? How politics can turn around and make strange bedfellows of people. I look around today, even, and I and I'm not gonna. I don't, you know, I don't get into the political things from the pulpit much, but but just the the reality of of how often certain things you say you're an evangelical Christian and you're immediately identified as something in particular, and in a political context. You know, uh, you know, or or the other way around. You say you're a, a particular party, and you're immediately identified as something as Christian or not Christian. More than likely, you know, the reality is, is that 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 politics are strange bedfellows for working with Christ. In fact, we have found over the years it doesn't matter how hard we work at getting our leaders into place, we still have Roe versus Wade Wade on the books. Okay, and I'm not saying that we should never stop fighting. No, we we should sit, march, do the things we do because that is our conviction. But we're not doing it because we're Republicans or Democrats or not Republicans or not Democrats or Republicans or whatever it is. We're doing it because it is standing up for what the Word of God says. That is our motivation. Side note, I guess. But they were out to, to entangle Jesus in His words. So they asked Him that question about the taxes. Because there is no right answer for it. You know, the, the Pharisees say no. The Herodians say yes. So if he, if he says yes, pay your taxes. Or no, don't pay your taxes. He's going to stir the crowd somehow. And there's going to be tension. And Pilate will have to see that and, and react because Rome can't. Let that fester. You see what they're doing? They're actually even playing into Rome with this. And ultimately, link hands with Pilate to accomplish their purpose. So you can see how contradictory they are willing to be to their their belief system, their belief window, in order to be rid of Jesus. So they're trying to trip him up. So we're not going to go into detail about the question on the taxes, but then they come up with a second question. By the way, the end result of that, that, that though, verse 17, uh, it says, and leaving them, he went out of the city. Oh, excuse me. Uh, I jumped over in the wrong spot. Uh, in reference to the, the taxes, it says, verse 22, when they had heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. They heard his answer and they marveled. Because he didn't answer the way they expected. They, 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 these guys debated these things all the time. And they had their staunch arguments. And, and every day it was the same arguments back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Every day. And Jesus said, you're both wrong. <laughs> Here's the way it works. And it says they heard and they marveled. And I, this idea of, of hearing is really important, uh, is, is that there's a, a response in their thinking. They actually listened. And the, this word, they heard, they listened. How many times when you are in a situation where you are having a debate with somebody, you put forth your position and you're already preparing what? Your next argument, because you've been in this argument before. And you know what they're going to say. And so you're sitting back here contemplating. But Jesus stepped so far out of the, 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 the loop as to what the answer was that they went, whoa. And they listen. 
And as a result, they, they, that was it. They didn't debate it any further. They marveled. They were actually in awe of his answer. They said, whoa. And they walked away. Now, you have to think about the, the Pharisees who sent their disciples. In other words, the Pharisees sent their, their trainees, the guys that they were teaching to, to, with the Herodians. You know, you've got to see the Pharisees were trying to keep that line a little bit. Uh, and, and so, you know, you have to think to themselves, okay, well, that didn't work. And so they're, they're wondering, okay, what else are we going to do? And then the Sadducees come up. And again, Brad mentioned last week that the Sadducees were those within the framework of, the, of, of the, the Hebrew people who actually did not have a spiritual context for the way they saw things. They didn't believe in a resurrection. Pretty much this life and this life is all that there is. But they were still a, trans, a, a, a group of people who were, were serious about the law. And that the law was for us to live today, here and now. They saw no long-term benefit past that point. Pharisees, on the other hand, believed in a resurrection. Okay, So these guys are also butting heads most of the time. And so it was kind of like the Pharisees and the Herodians joined arms and came up with a question. People were, they heard and listened for a change and were in awe of what Jesus said. And so the next question comes up, the Sadducees take a shot at it. And they say, there, you know, uh, they, they who say there is no resurrection, they said, we know that, and, and it's obvious from what Jesus is teaching, that he is a fundamentalist more leaning towards the Pharisee side of things in the sense of conservative uh, understanding and does believe in an afterlife and does believe in... So they were trying to get him into a position as, how do you explain the resurrection if a woman has seven husbands uh, and, and each one of them dies without leaving an heir and finally, at the end, whose wife is she going to be in heaven? And Jesus says, this just goes to show what you guys don't know. Heaven has nothing to do with physical marriage here on earth. Who is the bride of Christ? The church. We all are. My wife and I, who have been married uh, 48 years, uh, are, are, you know, not going to be husband and wife in heaven. We will be brother and sister and together the bride of Christ. And so Jesus is basically saying, you don't understand how heaven works. It's not it. And I'm not going to again go into great detail about it, but the end result was, verse 33, when the crowd heard it, they were astonished. Again, the same word heard. They actually listened. They said, wait a minute, he's not answering our question. The way we expected him to. He's not coming up with the typical answer. By the way, with these two things behind us and, and looking at it, what this tells us is that Jesus, if he is who he says he is, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Son of David, the King, if he's, all, if that, if he's who he says he is, then wouldn't you expect his answer to be complete, in a sense, kind of full? And possibly even different? You see, it, what it shows is that as much as we argue and look at and, and, and take stances on these things, we, never, we, 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 we want to be careful that, that we don't make jots and tittles, you know, the dots and, and cross T's, the, the, the focus of our, of our, of our faith. We, I was trained in, in, in Bible college and it came from every level of, of, of the college. Didn't matter whether you were studying in the, uh, in the, the Old Testament, New Testament, studying the Greek, uh, didn't matter what part of, of Scripture. It, it was always emphasized that the things of our doctrine are the things that are in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, and in the letters. The things that are clearly defined in those places. So what can we define? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can define that he went to the cross and said it is finished. We can go through a number of things that we can make our doctrinal issues. Speaking in tongues? No. No. 
Does it mean that, that some people that speak in tongues, are we, are we going to run around and become like, like Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians and start pointing our fingers at each other? No, that's not the, the point. Is that we, we say that there's room for understanding and growth. I do believe we're going to be amazed in a number of these things when we get there. Jesus is heard. They marvel. They're astonished. Uh, they, and and so and, and again, uh, they they're not sure in a sense what to do with him. So we get to today's scripture, the great commandment, and it starts in verse thirty-four. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This, this passage starts out again with the Pharisees. They're saying, well, the Sadducees didn't do it. Our first group with the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians didn't do it. It's up to us. And I have to tell you, I think in the order of pride, of who had the most pride as to who they were, it follows this suit. It's up to us. Nobody's been able to do it. So they gathered together. This idea of gathering together was they held a meeting before they sent their on, if you will, their first with the question. They gathered together to let, let's think this thing through and find the, the question that, 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 that can't be answered in any direct way. And so they gathered together, and one of them, one of the Pharisees, a lawyer. Now, a lawyer doesn't, don't think of a lawyer the way we think of a lawyer today. Now, although a lawyer would be a person who would be steeped in the law and how it applied to day-to-day life and how it needed to be worked out, okay, and, and this type of thing. But the idea was, was, as a lawyer, he was a person who was a theologian who understood the way the, the words come together for us to know how to live. And so he could declare how to understand the Word of God. So he would be a teacher as well as a lawyer. And he would be, you know, he would be the guy you would come to if you had a question. Well, this happened in the field the other day with my neighbor, uh, and and how do we resolve this? Well, based on, you know, and he would, his idea was that his response would be based on the word of God, and he would help them determine, you know, what was the reparations of of some kind of property damage that was inflicted, this type of thing. He was, you know, he was a scholar and a theologian in the Word of God and knew how to apply it to day-to-day circumstances. They sent a lawyer, okay? And the lawyer approaches Jesus and, and, and it says they sent him with a question to test him. To test him means to see, you know, they're looking for a pass-fail situation and basically saying this one can't be answered, so it's going to have to come with no matter what he does, he can't win. Another no-win situation, at least the way they were thinking about it. And so, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Again, we're talking about something that these men, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, all of these different people would sit around the, the temple and at the temple gates uh, you know, and, and, and courts. And in the small towns, they would sit at the, at the city gates. Uh, how many of you are familiar with uh, uh, Fiddler on the Roof, a great musical? Okay? And, and Tavia sings, that, you know, one of the parts of his song was that if he could uh, be a, a man who knew the Word of God, and he could stand at the gates and debate it all day long. Okay, and and what he's revealing is a part of their culture. There were the the the, the teachers, the the ones who were the leaders of the of the synagogue. They would stand and, and discuss these things. 
Uh, some would say, well, the commandment three, do not take the Lord uh, God's name in vain. Now, that's, that's the most important, and everything would ultimately stand off that. If you're careful with that, you'll, you'll ultimately be able to fit everything else in. Another one might say, no, it's this, or no, it's that. And they generally stuck with the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. You find uh, in Exodus chapter 20, the, the first, uh, I think, 17 verses, uh, covers the, the Decalogue. And it gives us uh, all of the different things, that, that, uh, the ten things that God gave to Moses that are the written down by the hand of God. And you've got to understand, in addition to the Decalogue, there's another 600 plus laws that come out of Leviticus and Numbers and, and, and the first five books of Moses. The Torah. And so they, they use this as a, almost like a cataloger. Every, all the other laws effect, impacted one of these ten. They, in other words, they, the, the Ten Commandments was almost like a table of contents to the overall picture of the law. So the debate always came back to the ten. This one or this one or this one, which is the greatest? And they, there was no concrete answer to this. There was no specific answer to this that would, would satisfy anyone, or, well, even within the groups. It wouldn't satisfy all the groups together, but even within the groups, they had different ideas. And so, what question would be better? No matter what Jesus says, if He says the first, then the guys who hold the other nine say, you know, in one position or another, they're going to be up. If He says the third, if He says the sixth, if he, well, it doesn't matter which one. He can't win. He's going to set apart a group of people, a large group of people. This was their goal, to trap him, to entangle him, to discredit him. Why was all this so important to them? Because the people were what? They were hearing him, they were listening to him, and they were marveling at what he had was saying. They were marveling at what he had done with Lazarus just a few days before and raising him from the dead. They're looking at this man. They honored him as the king of kings coming in on the, on, on, in the triumphal entry. And when they cleansed the temple, I think there was probably a large group of people saying, Amen. He had developed the following. And it had nothing to do with them. And what he was telling them was that you, the leaders, the teachers, are falling short. Who is he to tell us this? This carpenter from Nazareth who hasn't sat under any Pharisees. Who is he? Get the temperament so that you understand how these people would be feeling about him. Well, Jesus' response them caught them totally off guard. He didn't go to the Ten Commandments. He went outside the Ten Commandments. But what he hit them with was it was as familiar to them as the Ten Commandments and any other group of scriptures. I'll explain in a minute. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, Let's think about it. Let's debate about that. Let's, what do you think? No. He just says, said to them, here it is. It was like he didn't have to take a step backwards. He didn't have to think about it. And what he was going to repeat was something that they listen to, hear, or repeat themselves almost every day. He said, the Lord your God, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Now, he goes and adds to that when he says, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, we can look at this in a, in a kind of a, uh, an equation or way. You know, you can put the, 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 the Ten Commandments on one side and these two verses on the other side. The... the by the way, the, the, 
love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, comes out of, out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, most Bibles start with the fourth verse in the sense of a paragraph there, but he's quoting the fifth. And, and, and then the second one is out of Leviticus 19, uh, verse 18. And so he says this to them, and, and, and they're, they're like <laughs> amazed again. Uh, but he says these two commandments depend on all the law and the prophets. So he says, not just the Ten Commandments, but every law that you've got hinges on these two. So if you understand these two principles, you will have a better understanding of how to apply the rest of this over here. You look at it, the first four commandments, if you go back to Exodus chapter 20, the first four commandments deal with relationship with God. Not to have any other gods before him. No graven images. Him and, and him alone. These, this, this context of picture and, and, and a day of set aside for worship. All of it dealing, the first four verses, of dealing with how we interact with God. This way. And he says, as this is established. By the way, that's implied by the, the ordering of things. As this is established, now we look at this. How we interact with one another. And the, 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 the five through ten uh, the, you know, the next six laws deal with how we interact with each other. Back and forth. So the first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. He, he's saying that this is, it's all summed up in these two. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This picture is to love God with all that you are. Not, you know, I've, I've read some commentaries that spent lengthy times talking about the heart and the soul and the mind and the different parts of way and trying to be somewhat psychological about it. And there's, there's goodness, good things to go in there, but that would be a whole other sermon. You could actually do a sermon on each one of those and, and then at some point you'd have to bring them together because that's what Jesus did here. And the reality is, is that it's the whole being. We're not talking about just your actions or, 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 or just the way you think or, 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 or what's in your heart, but the whole person is responding to this of loving God. So that when somebody looks at you, they'll say his actions reveal his, his heart, his mind. We were talking about this as we were going through uh, Colossians uh, a book of uh, study in, in Colossians, and the study guide that we're using was basically taking the, the position uh, of, of, is there enough evidence in your life that would reveal that you are a Christian? And uh, a number of us who have you know, come out of the 70s especially, and, and uh, the 60s and 70s, uh, re- recall uh, one of the, the big songs that came out was Evidence. Uh, is there enough evidence in your life to, to convict you? And there was a whole, and it was had a, a backdrop to a story that had to do with a, Ch- a Chilean uh, uh, missionary and, and, and uh, the communist guerrillas trying to take over community and trying to identify who the Christians were and is there enough evidence? And, and somebody could say, well, yeah, that, 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 that person, we know they. Yeah. In other words, if it's happening, you're going to be different than. You can't help yourself. Something changes. And so uh, uh, Jesus is basically saying it's, it's the whole being that is to worship God and, to, and, and to, to seek Him and to love Him. And then the result of that, in other words, if you worship God in this way, you can't, it's, it's, it's basically you can't help yourself but to see people like God sees people and to love man as well and see his needs and desire to meet that need. I was saying that these are familiar words to the Jews. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through uh, nine. I'm, I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any 
stretch of the imagination. But Shema is the prayer that these Jewish leaders and Jewish people would say. And the Shema incorporated initially Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. And it was part of their daily devotions. So when Jesus uses this, he's, not, he, he's opening up in the sense of saying, it's what you've been talking about every day of your life. You may not repeat the Decalogue every day. You may not, you know, but this you say every day. This is what it's all about right here. What you say in your prayer every day. The Shema grew to include Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 13 through 21, and Numbers 15, verses 38 through 41. And I'm not going to go to either of those, but just the idea of, of, of showing that they're very similar to Deuteronomy chapter 6. That, and, and the idea was the, their tradition had come to a point where, as they looked at these three sets of verses, they, they said that the, 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 these three Parts cover all aspects of the Ten Commandments in some way. Nothing's left out. The idea, again, coming back to this point that to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind is to, to have it in such a way that it engulfs your life. Now, very quickly, we need to take a look at Deuteronomy chapter uh, Six. Starting with the fourth verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as fontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. These words. How important were they to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might? Everything that is within you. Well, it's so important that it's something worth talking about when you get up in the morning. It's something worth talking about before you go to bed at night. Whether you're doing it in your devotions, whether husband, wife prayers, with family prayers, the idea is, is that you know it's something that you recognize is a, it's so important that it's a part of your daily life. It's so important that you feel the the need. It's something that you're compelled to do. To teach your children. I know a number of people who homeschool or, or, or put their kids into Christian schools based on, on the premises of this verse. Because if they send their kids into the public school environment, what's the first thing they're getting is, is in all day long, instead of getting the things of God, they're getting the things of secularism, the opposite of the things of God. Don't, don't, tell, don't go and, and say, oh, Bob is anti-public school. What I am is that if your kids are in public school, you're going to have extra duty to make sure that you're understanding what your kids are taught. And this doesn't mean go to your teachers and, 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 and take your Bible and, 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 unless there's a particular opportunity that God puts in your path to do that. And that can happen and has happened. But, but the idea is, is that you understand as they're teaching. By the way, when do they start to teach evolution to your children in public school? Pre-kindergarten. When should you be teaching it to your children? Then? Oh, when they can understand it when they're in high school. No, you need to start planting those seeds. When they start to, to hear the Word of God, they need, need to start understanding the, the nature of God and who He is. That's what it's saying here. This is so important to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, that it's important that you teach your children these things. That you talk about it in the morning and at the night. And so important that you'd even write them on your doorpost and your gateposts. Why would you write them there? 
so that you see them when you leave and see them when you come home. In other words, they're, they're, they're things. And, and I was thinking about this, and I, and I have to say in my life, and it, this is an embarrassment when you, when you realize to yourself and, you, and you're looking at things sometimes, how familiar something becomes that you either do it mechanically or in a sense like rote, you just do it automatically without really comprehending or thinking. And I find myself sometimes looking through the Bible that exact way. Of just, you know, reading to keep something into context. And the next thing you know, there's something else in my mind. I, am, I, I, I have a terrible distraction. I have a uh, reading anything that's, that's, that's justified on both sides. Uh, in other words, justified from this side and this side means that there's larger gaps between some words than other words. You know what my eyes like to do? Follow the gaps. So I will read all the words and not remember anything. Fortunately, I have a, an overlay that I can put on my page and it helps do that. It's a color, actually. And, and it, it, it tends to help with that. But if I, So if I'm reading the Bible just to read through it and stuff like that, I actually use this. Now, when I'm reading the Bible to get ready for a sermon, it's kind of hard to do that because I'm having to move the thing because I make notes all over the place. And, and so, but, you know, it's, it's easy to, for things to become commonplace. Some hymns that we sing. Some, I have to say, I actually appreciated not having the words this morning. I had to think about it. And I realized, I should know this song by heart. I've been singing it since 1979. You know? You know uh, the reality is, is that we just get used to things. And it's easy to take for granted. And what, what Jesus is pulling out is this one thing, this cornerstone of the Hebrew people verse, and saying, you want to know what the great commandment is? It's what you say every single day. The Lord is God. He is one. You're to come and to worship Him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And if that's happening, the second one comes from it. You will love your neighbor as yourself. And the cleansing of the temple was showing Him, was a, was a picture of those who were not loving their neighbors as themselves. And again, he says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. They hinge on this. If you've got this, then the rest of the laws, as you begin to understand them, you'll be able to put them into place. And there are laws for just about anything and everything you can think of. Really, there is. People don't realize it. You know, the 600 actually, I think it depends on who you're, who, what scholars you follow and, and, and uh, but there's anywhere from 600 and I think 1819 to 647 laws and actually that just is is that some people hold two or three per, uh, phrases together as one and other people parse that apart and say no those are three but but the idea is that there's something for for everyone it goes right down to if I borrow your ox and I'm plowing my ground and your ox drops dead on my ground, I owe you an ox. Just plain and simple. Yeah, but your ox was old. I don't owe you a new ox. I owe you an old ox. But if I took this Scripture seriously, no. I would want you to have the best ox you could have. You're my neighbor. I want to treat you as I would treat myself. And I want to do the best I can to replace this. By the way, today's modern thing, I borrowed my neighbor's lawnmower to mow my lawn, bend the shaft, I owe them a new lawnmower or a repaired lawnmower. I don't take it, you know, and, 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 and it doesn't, you know, it turns out, oh, the shaft was, you know, you take it in, the shaft, oh, this shaft has been bent for a while, you just finally, oh, well, then I don't owe them as much. No, that's not what it says. It doesn't give you any leeway, it just says this, this, you know. And why? Because I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, and mind. God, through that, has opened my heart to love my neighbor as myself, and I want to treat you the way I, I, I want to be treated. Gosh, we're getting into the golden rule now, aren't we?
Our love, it's probably time to, to try to draw this back together here. Our love is a response to God's love for us first. It says, before we ever loved Him, He loved us. It says that in Romans chapter 5. It says it in 1 John chapter 4. Uh, that He loved us first. How do we know that? Because of the, before the foundation of the world, Ephesians tells us very clearly, before the foundation of the world, before man ever was, God had a plan to draw him into salvation. God knew we would go astray. The plan was already in effect. It wasn't hindsight looking back and saying, oh, we blew it, now we're going to have to come up with a solution. The solution was already come up with it. They knew that man, if we give man the free will, the ability to choose so that he's, you know, he's, he's able to see and, and feel and think for himself, he's going to abuse it. But we'll restore him, we'll bring him back into us. And, and, and all of the Old Testament is to point to how to bring us back into this relationship with him. It's a teacher, a tutor. And what's the final end result of that teaching of the Old Testament? It's that I can't get there from here. If you read through the Old Testament, you realize, I haven't kept all the laws. And in the letters, in in the epistles, it says, if I haven't kept, if I break even one law, I have become guilty of all. In other words, there isn't one that I can kind of ignore. If I've blown it, I've blown it all the way. And as a result, have incurred judgment. I am guilty. I don't need to go to a Supreme Court to find this out because the court has already been in session and already passed judgment. Anyone who sins is guilty. I have sinned. I am guilty. All fall short of the glory of God. No one out there can come before the throne of God and say, I deserve. No Pharisee, no Sadducee, no Herodian, no Republican, no Democrat, no... None of us can come before the God of all creation and say, I deserve. But because He loved us first, He put into the plan of found, the foundation of how much He loved us. And I put this as, as trying to figure this out. And of course, the ultimate verse is John 3.16, God so loved the world, He gave His only Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see this even at the Olympics. Uh, every now and then somebody's able to hold up their sign and show John 3.16. Jesus says we need to know God. To love Him. To seek Him. I'll put him I'm putting a number of things together. To look for Him. To ask of Him. And he says, if you seek me, you'll find me. If you ask of me, I will reveal it to you. If you knock on my door, I'm going to open and come in and talk with you. He is ready to do all of this. He says, so come to me. You need to know me. As you know me, you will realize how much I love you and what I've done for you. And that will open up the door for you to love me. But it won't because you chose to to love me, but because I loved you first and showed it to you. Our salvation even hinges on God. It doesn't really hinge on the law. You see, all of this law and all of this stuff in the Old Testament pointing up, moving it toward us, was simply to show us we can't save ourselves. We need a Savior. We need someone to save us. We need a sacrifice that will come between us and the throne of God and and His judgment and His wrath. And where God will see us as pure, as holy. Because the only thing that can come into His presence is that which is holy. He says, I've provided the way. You will come through My Holy Son. And if you come through My Holy Son, I will see you as My child. And welcome you. And Jesus accomplished this. He showed us how much He loves the Father that even though it was something that He... Isn't this an amazing thing? Jesus did not desire to do the cross. 
The Garden of Gethsemane is a a clear picture. But this was the plan before the foundation of the world. He said, the only way that men can be saved is if I do this. And my Father and I are in agreement. The Holy Spirit is giving me the strength. I will do this. He said, if there had been any other way to, to drink this cup, the cup of wrath, the judgment, I would do it. He said, this is the only way. When Jesus was put on the cross, He wasn't yanked and pushed and pulled. He was a lamb that volunteered and laid down for slaughter. It was all Him. His choice. There wasn't a point in time, at any point in time, in His trial, in any of this, where man other was in control, where the Romans were in control, or the centurion guard was in control. Jesus was in control the whole time. And He laid down His life. And finally on the cross, He said, it is finished. So to know Him, to know myself, to seek Him more, and to know Him more. By the way, uh, Colossians, uh, we're going to be coming up to this in our Bible study in this next week, but Colossians uh, chapter uh, 1, verses 9-10 through 10, there's a series of verses about you seek after God, you know Him more, it reveals Him more, you understand Him more, and it makes you want to want seek Him more, basically. It's called the Colossian cycle. And, and the idea is just that this is what God has, has put into us, this desire to know Him better and better and better to the point and day where we will not see dimly but see clearly who He is. And then if you think you've been amazed at some of the things that God has done around you, through you, or in your life, or where you've seen through others' testimony. You haven't seen nothing yet. I ask the ushers to come forward to bring the uh, share the emblems of communion together, the bread, the cup. Hold them until we've all been served and we'll share together.